0: Welcome! You are listening to LEAP, the podcast series that brings you interviews with leading scholars in law, economics and philosophy. We are Lynn Jonsouden,
1: Jeroen van der Ven, and Yapai.
0: Professor Pierre Legrand is professor of law at the Sorbonne University in Paris and a prominent scholar in comparative legal studies. He is well-known for his critical approach towards the methodology of comparative legal studies, as well as for his firm stance against the harmonization of private law in Europe. We will discuss both these topics with him. Welcome, Professor Legrand. Thank you very much for sitting down with us.
1: Let us start with the basics. What is, in your opinion, the object of comparative legal studies? Or, uh, in other words, what do you say is the nature of law?
2: Well, I think I would answer the question in this way. Um, I would say that comparative legal studies enjoys a negative identity. Uh, by this, I mean the following it is not the study of national law, and it is not the study of international law. Comparative legal studies is in between in the sense that it is neither national nor international. A comparatist, someone who does comparative legal studies, is someone who has an interest in foreign law. For a comparatist, foreign law has what I call normative purchase. That is to say, it matters. The basic idea, if you will, is that as a French lawyer, I can learn something from Australian law. I can learn something that might conceivably be useful
1: to me in my work as a French lawyer. And you made a point clearly that we should perceive law as law as culture. What did you mean with that?
2: Well, uh, I do not mean to be difficult, but I would, uh, I would want to correct your formulation. Uh, you say that one should perceive law as culture. I want to answer that it is not a question of what I perceive. Law is culture. I mean, I can decide to close my eyes to this fact. I can decide to ignore it but this will not make the fact go away. Uh, We refer to culture in order to capture the idea of ways of thinking about the world. Uh, The fact is that the French language, and here I'm talking grammar, I'm talking syntax, has certain tenses that do not exist in English. There are past tenses that I have available to me as a francophone which are not available to my English friends. Now, surely this will color my appreciation of the world. Um, My point is simply that it is unreasonable to think that somehow law would escape the kind of phenomenon that I'm discussing. And here also, I could offer any number of illustrations to show that culture speaks legally in the same way as it speaks uh, culinarily, musically architecturally and so on and so forth.
1: In that respect, a popular and widely used method of comparative legal research is the so-called functional method. This method entails, uh, in short, that one compares the solutions in different legal systems to a certain societal problem. It sounds effective and practical. Still, you've made the argument that this functional method is flawed, in a sense, uh, at least because it rests on the assumption that law equals rules. Could you elaborate on this uh, stance?
2: Yes, and again, uh, I will, if I may, develop an example. And I borrow this example from the leading textbook in the field, uh, which is a uh, treatise written by uh, Professor Hein Kütz. in fact, initially co-written by Professor Hein Kütz and his mentor, Professor Konrad Zweigert. Professor Kurtz says that uh, laws are similar even as to detail. So one can expect to find a doctrine, an institution in English law that will fulfill the same role, the same function as cause in France. In fact, Professor Kurtz refers to a presumptuous similitudinis. He has a goal. He wants to make laws uniform. He wants to unify the law. He makes this very clear in his textbook. He's very open about this. And of course, if you want to unify laws, well, it helps to make them look similar. It makes the enterprise uh, easier and more reasonable. But the point is, functionalism is a completely artificial It is something that a comparatist, Heinkertz, has devised in order, if you like, to hide the fact that, in effect, out there, on the ground, laws are different. They have a different history. Uh, They are informed by different philosophical values. They are informed by different political strategies. They are informed by different approaches to social
1: compromises, and so on and so forth. In comparative law, it's generally agreed that legal comparison, or actually any comparison, requires a common feature or a common yardstick by which you can compare. A comparation comparationis, it's called. So, without that kind of commonality, there is no comparison. Does that not mean, then, that legal comparison ultimately rests on sameness and not so much on differentiation? Excellent question, to which I hope to provide an excellent
2: answer. I have one, and it is up to you to decide um, whether it is good or not. You are correct in my view. One cannot have a comparison unless one has a commonality, unless one has an interface. Uh, I can compare an orange with a car, if I have an interface. That interface could be the price. I could compare an orange vis-a-vis a a car in terms of how much they cost. Or my interface uh, could be durability. I could compare an orange with a car in terms of how perishable these goods are, and so on and so forth. This is what I call the point of entry into the comparison. And again, I'm not disputing this, I need this. What I say, however, is that once I have entered, I can leave that behind. Let me give you an example. And let's say that my interest has to do with California and Germany. So I want to compare the law of divorce in California and the law of divorce in Germany. And I focus on this notion of fault. So, if I turn to California law, I will see that word. I will see fault, I will see no fault. I I will come across these debates that have developed around these words, around these notions. Now, if I turn to the German situation, I will come across the word Schuld. Now, in order to bring together Californian fault and German Should we agree? I need a point of entry. I need to be able to say, Well, uh, this is the reason why I feel that I can engage in this comparison. Now, this point of entry is a point of entry that I frame. I am in control here, I am in charge. So All this to say that I'm aware that even as I turn to California law, as I turn to German law, after having forced these two laws to come together within my comparison, I'm aware that even then I play an important role. But always my goal has to be to take a back seat, to efface myself as much as possible. My strategy is to minimize my input as much as possible. So, uh, yes, the tertium comparisonis is necessary, but it must be a very temporary moment. It must be a very provisional
0: moment. We've gone uh, into the subject of the position of the comparatist already a little bit, but I would like to uh, continue in this direction. You've said that legal cultures are irreducibly irreconcilable and that a comparative legal study is therefore always determined by the so-called situatedness of the comparative lawyer. And um, I would like to uh, ask you how you uh, see the relationship between this situatedness and the integrity of the research, as you already uh, mentioned, because it seems to be crucial that a lawyer has been trained either in a French system or in an Australian system and how to, how to do all these things that you just described.
2: Yes, I, I agree with you. I think it is crucial that one has been trained here or there. And I would say this is an important part of one's legal identity. Of course, legal identity is only one feature of one's identity. One can also be a Buddhist and a socialist and a feminist and what have you. Um, uh, But one is, for example, a French lawyer or an Australian lawyer or a California lawyer. And this fact, I think, is... Overlooked by most comparatists who tend not to be interested uh, in theorizing comparative research, which I find most regrettable. Uh, I think, as academics, uh, it is uh, our duty to theorize the work that we do. And uh, in my view, if uh, comparatists were to theorize their research more than they have been willing to do, they would have to accept that the comparatist is in the comparison. The comparison, the report, the account does not exist on its own as some sort of object uh, like a cloud or, 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 or a tree that would be completely detached from me. This comparison is something that I have made. It is something that I have fabricated. And if the maker of the comparison was trained in France and was taught to see the law from a particular standpoint, well... Reasonably enough, the product will differ uh, from a product fabricated by someone trained in Japan um, who was taught to see the law from a different angle. I mean, I move to ask, how could it be otherwise?
0: So, so how to account then for the the role of the comparatist in uh, uh, the reporting of comparative legal studies? Because It seems like the researcher is the only one aware of his own situatedness. Is he then to write in the introduction where he um, uh, obtained his legal studies? I mean, how is it uh, obvious for the reader to to place this work into the context of what you said? Yes,
2: this is a fair question, and this is an important issue. I think there are a number of moments in the research Uh, that one can uh, use in order to remind uh, the reader that none of it is impartial, none of it is dispassionate, and none of it is neutral. It's all about the fabrication of foreign law. I mean, I would take this so far as to say And again, I make this point to my students, and of course they look at me in astonishment and in in some state of disarray also, because the point I'm going to make uh, is disconcerting. But I will say, technically speaking, if you want to be rigorous about this, the California law of divorce does not exist. I mean, if it exists, show me where it is. Where can I find the California law of divorce? Nowhere. I say just to 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 finish. I say every piece of writing, no matter how technical, you could be writing about tax law, is ultimately autobiographical, and it is autobiographical because it is my writing. It's not anyone else's writing, it's my writing. And because it's my writing, it means that the words are quote-unquote my words, at least the words that I have chosen to use. Um, The quotations are quote-unquote my quotations, the quotations that I have chosen to use. So, yes, it's autobiographical.
1: Due to the harmonization of national laws in the EU, um, politicians and legal scholars often tend to speak of, for example... European company law, European private law, uh, or European contract law. And you do not agree with this way of speaking about law, because it implies that law is reduced to its perceptual dimension, as you say. What do you mean with that?
2: Well, I think colleagues who refer to European contract law and such like
1: um,
2: are being very... Uh, astute, very clever rhetoricians. That is to say, they are using words which refer, technically speaking, to something that does not exist. But of course, by repeating those words, by writing books entitled European Contract Law and, and, and whatnot... Uh, there's a sense in which they're making things happen I mean they're they're creating it's a bit like second life there's a virtual uh, uh, reality happening here I suppose I could start talking tomorrow morning about kind of French law I could write a paper entitled The Canna-French Law of Contract. And then someone would say, what is this? Oh, well, you know, uh, it's all about the law that is common to Canada and to France. There's nothing like that. Oh, yes, oh, yes, take my word for it. Read my paper. There is. Now, as long as I'm the only one talking about cana french Law, not much will happen. But if 15 years down the line, there's a chair of Canna French Law uh, at the University of Toronto, and if there's a research institute in Canna French Law at the Sorbonne, and if there's the uh, Cana French Law Journal of Legal Studies, and so on and so forth, well, we would train generations of students who would firmly believe that there is such a thing out there as Canafrench French Law.
0: Well, on on that note, there seems to be, at least on the European level, a political force behind the development of a European contract law as well. A lot has been written about the development of a European civil code, and although uh, that idea seems to be off the table at the moment, it seems like an optional instrument of European contract law, one which will be applied if uh, contract parties choose to apply this to Mm -hmm. their contracts, This would seem to be something that is very likely to be created in the future. I agree. In connection to the development of European civil code, you've criticized this development by stating that it's... um, I believe you used the word terrorization to describe um, a disregard for the common law tradition Mm -hmm. in this European context. This is
2: one of the problems with the idea, according to me.
0: So would you say in the context of... the the current development towards an optional instrument, this would be still a terrorization of common law? Well,
2: I would say it's less less disrespectful of the common law, it's less damaging to the common law. Uh, I think there's a world of difference between the two and what I have contested um, in my writing has always been the idea Uh, a code, a European civil code, that would be binding on member states uh, and which would compel, therefore, uh, those uh, member states hailing from the common law world literally to convert to the idea of codification. That has been my objection. And, and, And I've always asked, why should this conversion happen? Uh, Are we asking uh, the Italians to stop speaking Italian? Are we asking the Swedes to stop speaking Swedish? I mean, after all, wouldn't it be easier if we all spoke English within the European Union? Wouldn't it serve to lower transaction costs? Wouldn't it promote trade? I mean, you can use the same arguments. But somehow, once again, and I think we're back to one of your early questions... Uh, Law is not regarded as a cultural phenomenon. Language is cultural. Somehow law is not. So it would be seen to be inappropriate to eliminate the Swedish language or the Italian language
1: from the European Union. But it's okay to eliminate the common law. Some few critics have said that you're overstating the cultural differences both with regard to the method of comparative legal studies as well as in the context of harmonization of national laws. Some say that the differences are not that dominant that it determines one's worldview or that these cultures don't fit neatly within national borders but are uh, cross borders and in fact even within nation states different cultures may uh, may exist What's your response to such uh, criticism?
2: Well, I I have three uh, responses to uh, your question. Uh, Number one, I fully accept that cultures do not fit neatly within national borders. And in fact, in my work, I've always been uh, very careful to make this point uh, I often use the word tradition the common law tradition the, the, the Romanist tradition I do not think I have uh, been guilty of that sin uh, it would be reductionist to say one country, one culture And frankly I don't think anyone thinks that way. Uh, and those who say I have written that, uh, with respect, have not read me very uh, very well. Uh, point number two, you rightly uh, say that within one nation, within one country, there can be many cultures. Yes. I mean, I'm from Canada, uh, One cannot grow up as a Canadian in Canada without being aware of the fact that within one country there can be more than one culture. So again, someone who would say that I'm unaware of this fact um, is someone who has not been willing and and that is fine, uh, I suppose. Uh, who has not been willing to take take my work seriously. On the third point, which in a sense is the most important of the three, uh, and it was your initial observation, uh, you say, well, some of your critics argue that you exaggerate, uh, that you overstate uh, the cultural dimension of law. Perhaps, possibly, I'm prepared to accept that, yes, perhaps I exaggerate the uh, cultural dimension of law. To go back to the French statute on religious dress at school, I would say it's about interpretation. And it is perfectly legitimate for one of my readers to say he exaggerates the role of culture. If you read him, this statute is 95% culture. I disagree. And I'm much more convinced by this other interpretation out there, which says that it's 60% culture. Again, a silly contrast. Uh, I accept that. And I would say, let my interpretations succeed or fail... uh, Out there on the marketplace of ideas. There are those who do not like them, there are those who do like them, there are those who hate them, there are those who love them. Fine, and let us see what happens uh, over the longer term. Will these interpretations survive? Uh, Will they be read in 20 years, 30 years from now?
1: Who knows? And as a final question, if I may, what do you think is the future for private law in Europe? Do you think that the forces of legal harmonization will be stronger than a diversity of European legal cultures? And what role could comparative legal research play in a course of events?
2: Uh, I think forces of harmonization, as you say, uh, are very strong. I, I think there is clearly a political momentum um, in that uh, direction. Uh, the day there is no longer anything to harmonize, the European Commission ceases to have a raison d'etre. How should comparatists react? Well, many uh, comparatists have decided to go along with this trend. In a way which I find very troublesome, I have to say, again, from an epistemological standpoint. I mean, it seems to me that if you're a comparatist, if you style yourself a comparatist, well, this suggests at the very least, at the very least, uh, it suggests a certain, uh, what would be the word, a certain uh, benevolence towards legal diversity. Uh, I mean, if you're interested in foreign law, if you're you're taking the view that the foreign has something to teach you, well, you're saying that foreign law has a value. You're saying that things foreign hold an interest. And I find it very difficult to reconcile uh, these assumptions with uniformization agendas. I mean, if you're in favor of the uniformization of law, ultimately, at the end of the day, if you succeed, there will no longer be foreign law. I mean, the point of harmonizing or unifying or uniformizing uh, is to do away with foreign law. But again, uh, to close uh, on this, I I, I think that uh, there are relatively few of us Regrettably, there are relatively few of us who are prepared to approach uh, foreign law in that respectful way. The idea being that foreign law deserves to be recognized as a valid model, different from our model, but deserves to be recognized as a valid model, deserves to be
0: respected,
2: and deserves to be understood. That would be my message.
0: On that note, Professor Legrand, thank you very much for this conversation.
2: Thank you. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. You've made it uh, very um, agreeable. And and I thank you for uh, your interest in my work. And I thank you for investing so much time in the preparation of this conversation. Thank you very Very much.
1: much. Thank you.
0: Thank you. This was LEAP, a podcast series of the Center for the Study of European Contract Law at the University of Amsterdam. The series is made in association with the Amsterdam Center for Law and Economics. For more information and more episodes, please visit us at www.jur.uva.nl/leap. Thank you for listening.